We're certainly thankful for spirited singing and the opportunity to raise our voices and to do so with encouragement and excitement and enthusiasm as we praise the great God of heaven that made us and allows us this opportunity to come together on an occasion such as this one. As was noted, certainly we've already been blessed mightily on this Lord's Day, and yet as we come together for a second service this day, would you study with me about worms? You know, the Word of God has some interesting ways to teach us some rather lasting lessons, and one of them may well be along the line of the lowly worm. But yet, as often as the Word of God makes reference to worms, this introductory slide will basically set the stage by way of a principle that may be of an advantage to us over the course of our lesson this evening. We each understand that God, of course, fashioned the entirety of the universe and did so in accordance to His will. And certainly here upon earth, we understand the occurrence of a whole host of creatures in the animal kingdom. And yet so often they are used in the Bible in ways that at least set before us principles and that teach us some lessons. For example, in Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, you and I are admonished to learn from the ant that we should never be slothful and that we should always make appropriate provision in light of the opportunities physically available. Not only that, Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 26, how mightily we can at least appreciate the birds. They sow, they sow not, neither do they spin, and yet... They are arrayed, of course, by provision inasmuch as God prepares and takes care of them. We also are admonished in Psalm 32, 9 that we can learn from a mule. Interestingly enough, there are even lessons about understanding the opportunity that might be seen even from mule. But tonight, those aren't the thrust of our discussion. What about worms? As you can see on that slide... 22 times in the Bible, at least in the King James translation, we encounter the occurrence of worms. And surely amongst that number of times, we understand that God in His infinite wisdom set forward the placement of them. And so we will at least learn some lessons from worms tonight. Isn't it fair to say that worms certainly can be very good for the soil? Experts tell us that. And it surely can be good for fishing. But there are some other things worms are good for too, and that's what we'll be studying tonight based on the Word of God. The first lesson might well be under the heading of comparison. We find some passages that encourage us to reflect upon a worm as it sets before us the encouragement of appropriate view of ourselves. In Job 25, verse 6, man, or rather Job there declared that man, of course, is less than a worm. Now you and I know that doesn't contradict any of the verses that say that man, of course, was made a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2 verse 9 and others as well. But what it does remind us from that context, as Job made that statement, was the fact that how necessary it is to never think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Understanding, you see, that if we ever begin to think of ourselves like that, we are more likely to be less obedient to the God of heaven. We think we're better than He, or at least as wise as He. In Psalm 22, verse 6, David the long ago said this, He compared himself to a worm. We're reminded on some occasions that David, you see, was said to be a man after God's own heart. 
Could it be that on those understandings of his dealings in regard to his own frailty, how that he could succumb to sin, how he could fall away into temptation, maybe a reminder that he compared himself to a worm. He said, I am no man but a worm. And we understand David wasn't saying that literally. He wasn't literally a worm. But in the sense of his understanding of himself, the nature of his own frailty, may we never lose sight of our frailty. Understanding, of course, that we too can find ourselves in those kind of circumstances. No wonder in James 14, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Our opening set of verses then had at least a reminder for us about comparing ourselves to worm in that the worm appears to be so lowly, appears to be so weak, and yet some of the characters of the Bible compared themselves to that same thing. Maybe another lesson would come from these verses that at least bring before us worms. The control of God as well as that which it should prompt in us, namely, an element of great confidence and assurance. What about the control of God even in light of worms? In Jonah 4, verse number 7, what a memorable scene. Jonah, of course, was one who at first did not go to Nineveh to preach as he was told to do, and then afterward, after spending some time in a great fish's belly, he did go when later commanded. But the chapter ends in chapter 4 by reminding us that God brought up a gourd tree to provide some shade for Jonah. But then the text says God prepared a worm that consumed the gourd tree. Doesn't that remind us that worm was under the control of God? And of all the plants which it might have attacked, it attacked the one that provided the shade to Jonah. It attacked the one for which Jonah was so sorrowful. He preferred the shade over the salvation of the souls of the people of Nineveh. Isn't that an interesting reminder of God's control even over the worms? That's only the first example, though. The next one might even be more pressing, at least from this perspective. We're each so mindful of the children of Israel and their journey through, through the wilderness. I hope that you and I would quickly remember in Exodus 16 that the God of heaven gave a commandment relative to the manna. They were in fact commanded by Him that on those days we would call Sunday to Thursday, they were to gather an amount for that day and that day only. If you gathered enough with the hope that you could store it up for a second day, something happened. The text there informs us it would breed worms and stink. A constant reminder that every day is provided by God and that every day His provision and His assurance should be sufficient. And there when they chose to rebel and they tried to lay up that manna for a second day, they found again that it would breed worms and stink. Now at first sight, that may well be an interesting lesson, but what about the next one? Because I said only Sunday to Thursday. What about Friday? The Sabbath is, of course, on Saturday, and that was the day in which there was to be no work. But you and I might remember that God gave the commandment on Friday, you gather enough for two days. 
for that day and the next because, again, they were to do no work the following day. And the text of Exodus 16, 24 directly says, that manna would not breed worms the next day. Our God in control of the worms. The other days of the week, you try to keep it up, it would, in fact, it would ruin. But on that Friday... You could, in fact, keep it up. It would never breed worms for that purpose because God declared it so. And in so doing, another reminder of even the worm. And how that on that case, it's a reminder of some interesting lessons indeed. This might be a good point, though, to remember. That the worm, as you and I are referencing it so far, I'm sure that each of us think about earthworms. Probably when that word is mentioned. May I point out that the word as it appears in the Word of God, however, doesn't only include the possibility of an earthworm. It can include other kinds of creatures at least somewhat closely related to that family of creatures. May I point out various others like that worm that attacked that gourd tree. That wouldn't have been an earthworm. That's a kind of creature somewhat similar to those we'd call potato kind of creatures that might ruin a potato plant. But there it happened to be the gourd plant. There are those in that part of the world, but it was at least in the worm family. Another creature in that same family is the one that is now the one before us here. We likely would call it a maggot. You and I know if meat is left over too long, it'll stink and smell bad, and various things inside it will soon be evident we tend to probably call them maggots, and without doubt, that appears to be the creature that at least is the one appearing in some of these passages that actually are such that the King James word at least uses the word worm. You may notice another one on that slide. In Deuteronomy 28, verse number 39, God, in fact, told the children of Israel rather immediately and with such great strength that if they were to rebel against Him and if they were to be disobedient, that their crops, their agriculture would be destroyed by worms. God, you see, could even use a worm to bring about His judgment upon the children of Israel due to their disobedience. Is it not a reminder, at least in these lights, that our God is in control of this universe, be it worms, be it weather, be it other considerations that might well be brought to bear? And the last one on the slide is the one that served as the lesson text. In Acts 12, verse 23, even in the New Testament. Herod was a fantastic speaker, an orator of great delight. And when people heard him speak, this is, of course, Herod Antipas, when they heard him speak, they honored him as if he were God. And he made no correction. He did not offer any element of humility to attempt to redirect the attention and glory to God. And the text says in Acts 12, verse 23, he was stricken and afflicted consumed by worms. Now the kind of worm that consumed Herod Agrippa, again, that clearly wasn't an earthworm. But there was a man afflicted with a malady in such a way that he basically diseased away. And it was worms that were a part of the judgment of God toward him. As you and I close that slide, another reminder, even from the worm, we have an appreciation of the position and majesty of God what about calamity? The worm is even a reminder 
a means by which we can learn things connected to disaster, connected to calamity. It may well be the book of Job is a central feature and a central point of discussion for these points. And so in Job 7, verse number 5, as Job remarked upon his condition, and you and I recall well that in Job chapter 1, he, of course, had lost so many things, many of his possessions, even his children. In chapter number 2, even his health became so bad that the text would say that he had to use a potsherd to scrape the boils. You can only imagine how putrid that must have been. The, the kind of odor that would have emanated from skin diseased that way. Open sores oozing the kind of thing. Job must have been in some ways rather miserable from a physical condition at least. Even his wife said in Job 2 verse 9, Why don't you curse God and die? She offered little support, little help, little encouragement to him at that time. Surely it's fair to say that in Job 7 verse 5, Job now would use a worm to make this kind of description. He said, My flesh is clothed with worms. Does that indicate that the sores, those boils that were open wounds, had it come to the point where some kind of creature was on his skin? It would seem so. There seems to be no appearance that was figurative. But at the very least, even if it were, isn't it a reminder of the rather sorrowful condition his health had become? However, the next verse is this one in Job 17, 14. His own physical condition in light of this was so bad, he was in such misery that he could even describe his fellow acquaintances as if by corruption they were worms. As you and I think about that, I know we've often reflected upon Job and the kind of difficulties he was experiencing, and yet he even used a worm to put before us in a timeless way the misery, at least in that way, of that kind of situation. The next verse on that slide takes us to this. Despite the fact that we've already noted about worms, Job could nonetheless say in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Speaking of God, I hope that no matter what comes your way or mine, the absolute challenges, as difficult as they might be, may we through the lens of faith ever have eyes fixed upon the Lord and recognize that still all shall be well. In fact, we're going to notice another point in a moment taken from Job that will amplify this same issue. But so far, isn't it interesting to notice the worm and its placement in the Word of God? What about death? Worms even have something to share with you and me about the reality of it and the circumstances that surround it. It might well be stated like this. What happens to the body? after the time of a person's demise. Oh, we know that well. In Genesis 3.19, God, of course, directly told Adam, you were made of dust, and unto dust you're going to return. Now those words sound so direct. They aren't meant to be morbid to those who have a faith in the Lord. They aren't meant to be crushing to those who recognize what lies beyond death. 
But still, the point is rather plain. Worms live in the soil, and that's the very place to which your body and mine shall one day return. No wonder on that slide I've invited you to note this. In Job 19, verse 26, returning to that book of Job, even Job made this observation. By inspiration, he said it like this. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Don't you love the sentiment contained in a passage such as that one? Worms may well consume this body, but yet there shall be a mechanism by which I shall be able to view, to see, to enjoy the presence of God. But one more time, there's a reminder of worms. You may notice in the next verse, mentioned in the same context, only two chapters later, Job 21, verse 26. They shall lie down alike in the dust, and the worms shall cover them. You see, the disposition of the body is a constant reminder that our existence is not merely physical. As often as we look upon the body, we take care of it, we try to handle it appropriately and esteem it proper respect. How mightily is the truth that this body is not eternal. It shall suffer the corruption that the worms help us understand. It shall be consumed by that which awaits beyond the matter of death. For you see, once the spirit departs the body, James 2.26, the body is said to be dead. But the Spirit's not. The Spirit, you see, awaits a moment by which it shall inhabit a prepared body for that eternal realm beyond this one. That's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. That body, you see, will know no corruption. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. That body will be fully prepared for that which awaits beyond. Endless it shall be. Is it not fair then to notice a few Bible examples along that line? May we mention Abraham? Could we mention Sarah? You and I recall that a significant portion of the book of Genesis tells us about the detail by which Abraham sought place whereby he could lay the body of his deceased wife, Sarah. Genesis 23 reveals that information to us. And so there, Sarah's body was laid to rest. Later in Genesis 25, Abraham was buried there. Later, Isaac was buried there. Later, Rebekah was buried there. Later, Leah was buried there. We also find Jacob buried there. The point is, several of those Old Testament worthies were buried in a cave called the Cave of Machpelah. And yet, as surely as Abraham was buried there, aren't you and I excited to read Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12, where Jesus Himself would refer to Abraham as one of the blessed, who will serve among those to be seen in light of the day of judgment. Though Abraham's body was buried, Abraham, you see, is still alive. May I point out again that that element is the same one mentioned by Jesus in light of the teaching concerning the character of the soul. There came a time when the Sadducees came before Jesus and said, a man here's had seven wives. I'm sorry, a woman's had seven husbands because each of the brothers died without children. And so the next one would marry her with an effort, of course, under the law of Moses 
to bring forth seed. The Sadducees brought to Jesus this concern they thought would entrap him. No answer that he could possibly give. Jesus, of course, gave the answer in Matthew 22. He did that by reminding them, you see, that God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're still alive. Now, their body's been buried and long since decayed, no doubt. But they are still alive. Aren't you and I excited to think about the life beyond the realm of this physical one? Those who have departed this life, still alive in the realm that you and I would call the Hadean one. Let's go back to that slide and note this. You could also make note of Job 24, verse 20. Going back to that book of Job, Job had these words to say. The womb shall forget him, the worm shall feed sweetly on him, he shall be no more remembered, and wickedness shall be broken as a tree. You and I notice the wicked are under discussion here. You notice that again as their body decays in that way, worms shall sweetly feed upon them. Not only that, in Job 19, verse number 26, that's the verse we read a moment ago. Job had that positive assurance that although worms might consume his body, he would yet nonetheless see, see the God of heaven. Whether it be in death, whether it be in these other matters, we've noted one final observation about worms. And it's probably one you expected to come for likely the most familiar New Testament occurrence. Take it from Mark the ninth chapter. But there is an element of this that would seem to be probably unexpected. If you'd like to be turning to the closing chapter of Isaiah, we will notice something about Isaiah the 66th chapter that in fact has a bearing on this, probably again somewhat unexpected. As you're turning to that, we'll come to that location in just a moment, but isn't it fair to say this? The Word of God makes such a great emphasis upon obedience to the Lord, faithfulness to Him, and certainly not living in a way rebellious to Him. And yet there is a serious fate described for those who choose to disobey the God of heaven. They go about their life, and yet they live as a rebel to His cause. They refuse to submit to Him. They live in such a way, you see, that they openly defy His greatness. In both Old and New Testament, there is a rather strong sentence for those in that condition. May I direct your attention to Isaiah 66. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. Who is it? Those that have disobeyed God. How does the verse end? For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. That sounds very similar, doesn't it, to what we are accustomed to in the New Testament. Because the New Testament writers made reference to something quite like it. Again, it's found in Mark, the ninth chapter. Inasmuch as we've just noted that text in Isaiah 66, listen to how the Lord spoke in Mark, the ninth chapter. It is from that place we hear Jesus say the following, If thy hand offend thee, Cut it off. 
For it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Reads the same as Isaiah 66, 24. But the Lord isn't finished. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell fire, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. There's our worm again. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. As you can see on the slide, we merely have used the worm to remind us in this sense, even about the perspective of eternal destruction. As we've often noted, Jesus had a reference, it would seem, here to the valley of Hinnom, and that's why in the Old Testament it was understood. That valley, just to the south of Jerusalem, that was the garbage dump, the garbage heap of that city. They would cast the carcasses of dead animals and their trash and their refuse there to be burned. And where it is said from scholars that the fires would burn around the clock, consuming the trash, the debris, the carcasses of slain animals, and what's more, even those carcasses of animals slaughtered at the temple. They'd be cast there for consumption. And so wild animals would gnaw on those bones and they would consume upon them. And that's why the Lord could describe it this way. The fires never went out and the gnawing took place in that way as animals consumed that flesh that was there. Jesus is saying, this is as close a portrait to hell as I can give you. Terrible, awful, absolutely pitiful. Well, to that image of those living in the Jerusalem area, that was something at least they could imagine. And yet you and I notice that as the Lord described eternity in that way, you and I know that hell, of course, is for spirit beings. But there is a fire. And there is unending pain. And there is unending misery. The worm helps us remember that. Have you and I ever found a way to eliminate worms? To do away with them completely? Maybe there have been those who have tried, and yet the worms still manage to succeed. Isn't it true that our study of the worm tonight has brought before us a number of lessons, not the least of which has been these summaries. The, ne the necessity of humility and lowliness, lowliness in mind and heart, just like David again asserted in Psalm 22, 6. The worm has also set before us the matter of God's amazing and ultimate control, even the control of the worms, as well as the maggots that consumed the body of Herod. The worm also reminds us of the reality of calamity. It came that way upon Job. The misery connected to his disease. There are some pretty serious diseases in our world today. And yet the reminder of God's control and that connection might at least remind us even in the need for them to exhibit a strong and unbending faith in God. Worms. What about death? 
the reality of, again, from the statement of Job, that that's what shall occur to your body and mind beyond the time of our demise. But then finally, how much worse is it to contemplate the eternal repository of hell? Jesus likened it to a place where the worm never dies, a place where the fire is never quenched. These issues concerning worms, at least, are great reminders for us about something, perhaps when we see it next, maybe a passing thought about lessons we can learn from a worm, things that can challenge us in faithfulness, and things that can help us to always serve the Lord in mindfulness of even what many in the animal kingdom are able to illustrate. As we come near the close of our lesson tonight, I entitle it Lessons from a Worm. As you can see, worms often occur in the pages of the Word of God as instruments of teaching, as agents set before us principles. Tonight it could be that someone in this assembly is such that your life has been motivated by a study of worms to make some changes, to recognize the need to do things differently. We want you to know that we would love to help and to assist and to encourage in whatever way we might. We would ask that you allow us to do that by sharing with us what we need to do. If you've never become a Christian, believe on the Lord. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known that way of life, perhaps confidence connected to God's control even in worms, but perhaps over the course of time, that's no longer the way that you think about things. If you've strayed from the Lord, come back to your first love. Place Him as priority number one and proceed again to follow just as fully the worms would. Tonight, if we could assist in that way, as you would repent of those sins, make confession of them, we'd be delighted to encourage, assist, and help and pray unto God on your behalf. If we could help in that way tonight, won't you come while together we stand and sing?